I want to welcome everybody here and also the Bellhaven football team. Fonder Church, would you give it up for these guys who come to worship with us today? I mentioned at the outset that we're in week three of a four-week sermon series called The Meaning of the Bible. And we're dropping some truths that I think for a lot of you, you just readily say amen. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. And we're also dropping some things that I want you to rethink and reshape how you think to be open and permeable to the future that God has for us as we understand his scripture. We're saying that the Bible is not so much a book, but it's a collection of books, 66 books. There's a variety of locations, languages, and literary styles. There's a diversity of authors. There's kings and poets and peasants and philosophers and fishermen and scholars and statesmen. And we see in it doctrine and narrative and poetry and history and letters and sermons and songs and an erotic love song and wisdom literature. We see uh, geographical surveys and architectural specifications, uh, legal documents, travel diaries, family tree. And it comes to us in this written word known as the Bible. The Greek word, the passage we're going to look at in a minute is graphe, God breathed, God inspires word to us. The Bible says some things about itself, about the Bible. Uh, it's referred to in many beautiful beautiful ways and many beautiful metaphors. The Bible describes itself as a light and a lamp, Psalm 119, as a hammer that breaks us and a fire that purifies us in Jeremiah 23, as food for the soul in Jeremiah 15, as milk that nourishes us in 1 Peter 2, as a sword that cuts, Hebrews 4, Ephesians 6. It, it says that it's sweeter than honey, Psalm 19. The scripture says some things about itself, but we mentioned last week I took my uh, put my otter personality, my fun-loving personality kind of on the shelf and went Debbie Downer. We just acknowledge that because we need to, because we need to deal with reality. And reality is that we have a problem with the Bible. We have a problem with the Bible, and I stated it simply, we just don't read the Bible. It's the best-selling book of all time. Everybody, when I count to three, sh shout out the year that you were born. If you're old, you'll want to kind of mask it, but what year were you born? One, two, three. No matter what year you said, that year, the Bible was the best-selling book of all time. But so widely circulated, so highly praised, it's been burned and it's been banned and it's so beloved, but it's so often neglected. It's just not read. I, last week, I asked you to raise your hand, not literally out you know, your actual hand, but the hand of your heart and say, how many of you really read the Bible? How many of you read the Bible daily? Just 15 to 20 minutes a day. How many of you have a Bible reading plan where you read the Bible through uh, in a year? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Now, this isn't for guilt or shame. I just want to lean, I want this to lean heavy on us. But if we claim that this book is so valuable to us, and yet we attend to it so little, uh, that's a problem. Often I say that in churches, um, people file in in pews on a Sunday morning. And we, we don't like the Bible, but we like that he likes the Bible. So tell us something about the Bible. Scripture is God's inspired word to us. One of the things we mentioned that we have a problem with the Bible just related to laws and genealogies and the things that are in it. If you, have, if you start reading the Bible and you say you make a resolution and you say, I'm going to read the Bible through, you get to Genesis chapter 3 and there's a talking snake 
okay? We have problems with oftentimes with the content, and that's why we looked, and that's why I'm teaching you, uh, inspired by the brilliant inventor of Veggie Tales, that we are to read the Bible not literally at face value so much as literarily. Is that controversial? Is that hard to hear? Do you feel like I'm falling off a deep end here? In other words, we read the Bible as God intended the Bible to be read. Isn't that everybody's heart? If you write something, first of all, if you write something, it's human, not, not divine, but if you write something, there's a recipient of what you write. It's an individual or a, a collection of people, and you want them to interpret it, to read it, and to understand your intent in writing it. What happens if he or she or they don't? You'll be misunderstood. And that is one of our great problems of the Bible. I set out to you Psalm 148 last week, and we talked. I gave you one example of a few. But Psalm 148 says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you heavenly host. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. A lot of beautiful metaphors. And it says, just as the waters are above the sky. Now, do we know in 2017, we've known for many, many years that the waters are not above the sky. So what we don't want to do is have a view of the Bible that's the golden tablets view. Where God just dropped the Bible down from heaven. It is divine. It is inspired. It is pure and it is perfect but it was written also by human authors God intends his perfect word to come through human authors and we see in Psalm 148 not science that makes the Bible wrong but ancient cosmology that God speaks to remember week one we put up a passage in Deuteronomy that just seems sexist and demeaning and offensive and that verse read in our day seems that way but I showed you that that verse in that day actually move the ark the story forward and that's what God does and that we can understand the Bible and we can be free it's taken me many years to get there but I can be free knowing that the Bible is perfect and it is as I interpret it understand it as God intended it I can relax and know that it is a perfect truth it is inspired there's no other book like it I want you to look, I want us to look this morning, and let me, let, me, let me give you one example in this regard when I talk about literarily and not literally. You ask me, let's say someone asked me many years ago, 22 years ago, hey Robert, why did you fall in love with Susan? And suppose my answer is, well, she's five nine and a half. she drives a sporty red Nissan, she's from the South Bay of LA, and her last name is Mamarian. Now, all of those things technically are true. I just dropped facts to you, but isn't that, stra- isn't that a strange response? But suppose I were to say, why did I fall in love with Susan? Well, the first time I looked into her face, well, that's the last I've seen of my heart. Now, you would not say that. Thank you, Lauren. And I quoted, by the way, from a 70s song. That's just plagiarism from a 1975 song. I looked at your face. That's the last I've seen of my heart. But say that that was my answer. Now, your response to that white, would be what? You wouldn't say, well, you don't have a heart. You don't have something, a four-chambered organ in, deep in the cavity that's pumping blood through arteries, veins, and capillaries. That's not your response because you understand. I did not give you science. I gave you a poem. You with me? Sometimes we just need a poem, and if you throw science and technical jargon in there, you've ruined it. But sometimes I need science And I need something technical and precise. If I go take my car to the mechanic because something's wrong and the mechanic says to me, your carburetor is cranky. Well, that's a cute little poem, isn't it? I don't need a poem. What I need from the guy at Chevron is it's the the X3945. It's $145 and we can have it ready tomorrow. I don't need a poem. I need the guy to be efficient and technical. Do do you get that? So here's what I want to say because I've gotten a few emails, which I love, um, but... 
when the Bible intends to be scientific, it's dead on. But when the Bible is not intended to be scientific and it's intended to be poetry, it's beautiful. And that's the way we, I mean, we get that to our day. Why put that on the Bible? So there's things taught to you in your childhood. The golden tablets view, you can't get that past your freshman year of college. But that's not how God intended to give us his word. It is not his word and is not how it is to be understood. It's the, I told you last week, it's the incarnational model. Divine, given through human authorship. Just as Jesus was fully divine and fully human. Liberals among us emphasize the humanity of Jesus and the Bible. And conservatives, uh, even fundamentalists, emphasize the divinity of Jesus and the Bible. And what we need to do is what God wants us to do is to hold it in tension. And when we do, it is so good and right and perfect. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's read this. This is Paul. He's writing to Timothy, a young protege. How many of you have a mentor? You're in a mentoring relationship. Raise your hand. You've got somebody older speaking into your life. Or you, you, you are speaking into the life of someone uh, younger. But as for you... Paul to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, pause, grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, shaped Timothy in the Holy Scriptures. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here we go, really important. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In week one, we've asked, really, what is the Bible? In week two, we looked at our problem with the Bible. In week one, I gave you two words. Do you remember them? Say them out loud. Glory and story. In week three, I I gave you, uh, I'm sorry, week two, last week, I gave you three words. What were they? Genre divine and human. It would stand to reason now that I'm going to give you four words since it's week three, but I'm just going to give you three because I'm watching the clock. But here is the first word of the three. We're, a- we're asking, what is the Bible for? The first word I want to give you is revelation. It's revelation. Friday night, Susan and I joined a few other couples and we went to the escape room here in Jackson. How many of you have done that? Show of hands. You've been to the escape room. How'd y'all do? Did you get out? The goal is they put you in a room and I act like you're defensive or helpless. You go into a room, and in that room, the goal is for you to work well, that, that you need to exercise observational skills and communication with your teammates, and the goal is to get out of the room or rooms in under an hour. How do you think we did? Do you think we got out in under an hour? Just guess, yes or no? We didn't. <laughs> I carried the team, by the way. They rode my back just all the way. I had a lot of weak links on the team. Nobody really gave me help. But we got out in 62 minutes. And in the escape room, there are, and all rooms are different in various cities, but the one we went into had a sort of a NASA theme. And we were looking for clues, and we were trying to unlock combination locks, and we were looking for patterns, and we were talking. And you can have three clues. What is a clue? You asked. So there's a guy outside. He's the owner, operator, proprietor, employee, and he's creepy. He's watching us. He can see us. We can't see him. Uh, This isn't a good advertisement for the escape room, is it? You should go, really. But this guy's watching us, and when we call out to him, he can offer us a clue. And you have three. 
and we're listening to a voice. And that voice, because sometimes you just get stuck. Like you got eight people in the room and nobody knows what's next. We're looking for patterns. We're starting to kind of fuss and fight and feel just stupid. And so we call out, hey, sir, give us a clue. And he gives us something. We hear that voice and do what he says. And it prompts us and guides us to go forward. It is, if you will, a revelation. There is a voice. I said this a couple of weeks ago, quoting Pastor Rick Warren. He says that a lot of followers of Jesus are looking for a voice, and God gives us a verse. He speaks to us through his word, and in the written word, there is revelation. There is revelation to guide us forward. Revelation, if you're a note taker, write three bullet points under revelation. God wants to reveal, and he does reveal in his word, who he is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Who he is. We need. You can walk out into the, night sky, into the night sky and don't do it tomorrow, tomorrow evening without the right kind of glasses. If you look up, you'll burn your retina. Okay, don't blame God or me. I'm warning you now. But you can look up and we can look up. You can have a weekend out camping and you can see the beauty of creation and have a sense that there is something transcendent, someone Above it all, you get the longing, Ecclesiastes 3. God has set eternity in your heart, and there's this curiosity that there is a God. But through Scripture, God gives us His attributes and His character. One of my favorite writers, A.W. Tozer. Any of you familiar with A.W. Tozer? He talks about uh, this secret law of the soul. Secret law of the soul. He describes it this way, that... We move toward everybody. Everybody moves toward a mental picture of who we think God is. A secret law of the soul. Everybody. The ISIS terrorist who beheads the infidel. The celebrity pastor who preaches the prosperity gospel and gets out of his Humvee after hanging out all weekend with Justin Bieber. The Westboro Baptist Church picketer who yells hateful things at the military funeral. The gay singer who thanks God at the Grammys for his one-night stand the night before. The Catholic nun who says no to marriage and an American success and goes to the slums of India to live among the destitute and dying. The business tycoon who decides to reject materialism and consumerism of our day and become a reverse tither and give 90% of his regular income to kingdom work. The man, the husband, who has a wife with a chronic debilitating illness but remains faithful to her decade after decade. Each person, each woman, each man does what they do based on their view of God. Like a moth to a flame. The secret law of the soul says we move toward our mental picture of who we think God is. And in his word, he reveals who he is. So we are called to hear it, to read it, to study it, to memorize, and to meditate on it. Can I tell you, church, you can, you can buy this or not buy it. But I'm telling you, there have been seasons of my life where that's the very thing that gets me through. It's the very thing that allows me to escape from one room to the next, to hear the clue of who God is. God wants to reveal himself. What's the purpose of the word? That's the central question we're asking this morning. The purpose of his word, of the Holy Scriptures. One is revelation to tell us who he is and also who we are. There is a word, I want to put it up, Imago Dei. 
Have you heard this? Do you know its meaning? Imago Dei is from the beginning. And it's God creating. It's God creating male and female. It's God creating me and you in his image and in his likeness. Who are you? Listen to me, especially young people. I'm raising three kids in this world. I'm living in this world myself. But we live in a world and a culture that wants to give you your identity. I am Republican. I am Democrat. I'm on the right. I'm on the left. I'm blue collar. I'm white collar. I'm creative. I'm technical. I'm artsy. I'm not artsy. I'm cool. I'm uncool. I'm hip. I'm a hipster. I'm a hippie. I am this. I am that. I'm a jock. Look at me. I think you all are. That is not your identity. And even in issues today of marriage and sexuality where we are seeking to bring biblical truth to bear, I can tell you that your sexuality is not your identity. That is not who you are. I say over us as a church today, Umago Day, you are created in his image and his likeness. Who? Everybody. What if, preacher, I'm sitting next to someone and they, they're weird? Just look around you right now, make sure, just kind of check, check, check where you are, get a feel, get your bearings. But somebody's around you and they're just different, like they're weird, they're strange, they're not like you. Can I say, Imago Dei, God has created them and just as he's created you, in his image and in his likeness, who are we? We are created by him and every human being and every life has dignity to God. I just say that over us. There is this dignity. But there is also this bent towards sin. We are busted up by sin. You got some sin? Nod your head. Does sin mess you up? Did you bring some sin here today? Well, don't do that. This is church. Good gracious. Check your sin at the door, right? Did you bring your, did you bring, it's in your heart, isn't it? Jeremiah 17, I say this over our church often as your pastor. I feel compelled to say this. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? I do both. I teach human dignity and human depravity. I tell my own kids, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. It is good. But I also tell my kids, do not follow your heart. Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Some of you need to hear it today. You're flirting with something. It feels good and it seems right, but it won't give you the life that it's promising. It will lead to death. There's dignity in all human beings. And there is depravity bound up in every heart. And it is busted up. It busts us up and leads us astray. Revelation is our first word today. What's the Bible for? Revelation. Who God is, who we are, and then how we relate to each other. I've said this before. I think last week I'm going to say it again. That the, the Bible is, if you made it out as a pie chart and you put, the, you put it in various forms... It would be about 23% doctrine. 23%, that's a lot, but 23% of of the Bible tells you how to live and what to do. 33% is poetry and 44% is narrative. Now, when Jesus said to Peter and John to get on the donkey and ride into town, I don't necessarily think you and I get on the donkey and ride into town, but we got to figure out what does it mean, why did he do it. There's some truth there, but it's, it's, it's narrative. But there is, in Scripture, It tells us how we relate to each other. And so because of the context of the series where we're tackling some of the tough stuff, I want to point you to Genesis. In Genesis, now a lot of us grew up with the golden tablets view of the Bible that everything we read in it is sort of a moral story. It's a nice moral story. That's not true. If you go to the Bible with the golden tablets view that it just fell out of the sky, 
and that it's full of nice moral stories, how to live, how not to live, it's going to mess you up. Again, there's the talking snake in Genesis chapter 3. Then there's polygamy. How many of you find polygamy to be offensive and illegal, right? That's kind of the bedrock, one of the, one of the ideas that we carry as Americans. But in Genesis, in the early pages, you see polygamy. And if you have a golden tablets view of the Bible, you see that and you have a problem with that. You're presented with something that you can't get around. And here's what I want to say to you. It's not a story of how to live. God doesn't bless them because of polygamy. He, he is merciful to them in spite of their polygamy. So you see, God chooses a nation called Israel. And Israel was made up of 12, there's 12 tribes, there's 12 sons. And they hail from, four. they have four mothers and one dad. Now that's just our boy Jacob, right? I mean, Jacob was busy. That's Jacob, four wives, 12 sons, tribe of Israel. You don't read Genesis and go, oh, that's how we relate to each other. That's what the Bible is endorsing. Every single example Okay, every college students, listen to this. If someone comes after your faith, every single example of polygamy in the Bible is negative. You, you want me to, here's the result. It's like watching, it's a dysfunctional family. It's like watching daytime TV. You see in polygamy, the negative examples given to us are anger, jealousy, envy, infighting, favoritism, and sibling rivalry. Anger, jealousy, envy, infighting, favoritism, and sibling rivalry. Like none of that's good. Nobody wants that in your family, right? But that's what you get with polygamy. It's not God endorsing that and telling us that's how we live. It's God saying, I'm going to be merciful to these people that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked, that rebel and do things in their own way. And the scripture teaches us how we treat each other. I need the scripture because I know that I am not often, or sometimes I am not treated well. How about you? You've been betrayed? Had somebody let you down? You have a love in your life and you find out that it's a hypocritical love. It's, it's not sincere. There's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's not. That's not the way. And scripture reveals to us how we are to treat each other. One of the things that kills me are how many mean Christians there are today. And mean Christians are loud Christians. And C.S. Lewis put, us, put it this way. Those who know the least know it the loudest. And there are people who scream their meanness all over the internet. And they're pronouncing God's judgment on people of whom it's not for. We treat each other in the church. There's a difference in those who are following Jesus and those who aren't. in how we treat and relate to each other. And there's some stuff we need to keep in-house. Scripture teaches us. It gives us revelation. That's our first word. Who God is, who we are, and how we treat each other. The second word is history. And those of you who are taking notes, write history through the lens of Israel. Through the lens of Israel. Not China, Costa Rica, or Argentina, but Israel. God calls out. Remember the meta narrative of Scripture? We're mentioning it every week. There's five acts in the story. There's creation. There's the fall. There's the nation of Israel, which really complicates Bible reading for most of us when we don't understand civil, ceremonial, moral laws, dietary laws. There, there's the nation of Israel. There's Jesus. After 400 years of silence, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And God speaks like he has never spoken before. And a revolution of sacrificial love begins. No story can ever top it. And into this... There's this 
call. There's Jesus and then there's the church. And that's the fifth act, the act that we're in. But this nation of Israel, God said, I'm calling you out. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. And through these people that turned and rebelled, he shows his mercy. And in his mercy, he eventually draws out a Messiah. Anytime we do a character sketch, we've done it with Nehemiah at Founder Church. We did it this year with David, a sermon series called Flawed Hero. When we preach from the Old Testament, we see Jesus. We find ourselves in the story. And you are not the hero in any of the stories. You are the one who's fallen, the one who is destitute, the one who's dying, the one who's busted up by sin. And you like I, need a Savior. And in this story of Israel, we see that God is drawing out despite them. He blesses them, just like he blesses you. Anybody feel blessed today? Like, you're, you just feel really, yeah, you can clap, you can talk. Like, you're blessed, but don't think, now that you stop clapping, don't think you're blessed because of who you are. You're blessed despite yourself. And God blesses the nation of Israel, even their waywardness, and draws out a Messiah, a Messiah that we get to join as we become like him, as we're shaped and formed into the image of the Son, and we too are called to be about the healing and renewal of the nations. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's history through the lens of Israel. You won't understand the Bible if you don't get this. But listen to this. It's like Israel is Israel. It's this small nation, and what a small nation! It's a small nation, and it's part of a larger story of redemption that we get to be involved in. Think of World War II. Think of Band of Brothers, right, fellas? Band of Brothers. That's a story about a group of men, and their story is in a larger story, and their story makes sense as the panorama comes in full view as we understand the larger story, and so it is with the Scripture. And here's what I'm going to say this morning. We all are living in a story. Everybody. You believe that? Everybody is living a story because everybody's looking for meaning. What is in every heart? Identity, who we are, origin, where did we come from, meaning, what matters? What do I give myself to? Atheism is a story. Atheism is a story. Identity, who am I? An accidental animal. Where did I come from? A glorious mistake. What's the meaning of it all? There's no meaning. It just is. The Republican right, the progressive left, there is a story. There's a story behind every ideology and ism and schism. Hedonism. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow they're opening a new bar. There is a story and all of us are living out a story. Identity, origin, and meaning. And the Bible as it points to Jesus. Remember last week, John chapter 5, you search the scriptures and you're, you're learning a lot, but you don't see that it's pointing to me. You're missing the point of it all. In this story, there's a protagonist and the protagonist is not you. It is God. Every life involves a story. How many of us love a story? A story that the Bible gives us is an alternate story. Are you a note taker? Write that down. The Bible gives us an alternate story. 
when I was in seminary, I took a social justice class. We had one textbook called Rules for Radicals. And the author was once asked, if you had to change the world, do you think it's better to change the world through violent revolution or gradual uh, incremental reform? And the answer in Rules for Radicals, neither. You change the world by telling a different story. And the message of the Bible through Jesus is an alternate, it's an alternate story. It's a story that subverts and upends every other wrong story. Atheism and secularism and hedonism and even capitalism and socialism and sexual tolerance. It upends and subverts. It's the story of the Bible. We love a good story. The Bible's an alternative story. It's a story that invites participation. What is it that makes a story good for you? We have a lot of athletes in the room. I was going to say this either way, but I love, I love sports. I love ESPN, and I really love 30 for 30. Can you feel me on this one? I mean, 30 for 30, it's like it's better than sports. It tells you about like the people playing sports, and it tells you things that happened to them. The, the eight, I love the 80s uh, Celtics Lakers, the 30 for 30. My wife is from the West Coast. She, she didn't know about Marcus Dupree. She watched the Marcus Dupree 30 for 30 and started crying. Like, we love a good story. We enter into the story. We're moved by the story. We're invited to participate in the story. Star Wars, huh? Star Wars? Show me. Find me a 10-year-old boy that doesn't want to be a Jedi Knight. There is something in us that wants to participate in a good story. And the Scripture invites us to, put, to channel your inner thespian. And become an actor, not a Greek actor, not a hypocrite, not a fake phony person, but someone who enters into the story, this story of redemption. And we, you and I, we play our rightful part. Revelation, history. They're playing music, i got to say this fast. The third word, formation. If you're a note taker, write information on one side of the page and write formation on the other. And when you write information above it, put not this or not just this. On, on the side that you wrote formation, put this, exclamation, exclamation. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's given to us, and it is profitable. It can produce a wealth of riches in your life. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We're all being shaped by something. Do you believe that? We are all being shaped by something. Sometimes I meet people my age or older and they think they're, they're not being shaped anymore. We're all being shaped by something. I know you got kids and grandkids and you see how they're being shaped, but we're all being shaped by our culture, by our habits, by our environment. And sometimes I like to think, well, I'm Robert Green. I'm the pastor of Foner Church. I'm a concrete wall. Nothing gets in. But can I tell you, I'm just like you. I'm a chain link fence. And I find myself being formed in ways that do not make me more like Jesus. That do not conform me into the image of his son. You see, I influence and I am influenced. I form and I am formed. And the scripture gives us a way. If we hide it in our heart, and I have been for 35 plus years, and so many times in my life, and it can be this in yours, and it is in some of you, it can tell you not that, but this. Mm -mm. 
That's not the way. Here's the way. Every group that gets in a circle, every class that is formed in October, there's a Wednesday night we reserve for a panel of what I believe are experts, and they're going to talk to parents about how to talk to your kids about sex. That's rooted in the Bible. Mark Baldwin and Tyler Hendricks are teaching their second class on financial peace, of how to manage money, how to budget and save and give, and that's, that's rooted in the Bible. The Bible teaches us how to live. And I will engage anybody in debate and dialogue and testimony. It is the way that leads to life. I want to say to you today, man, this is not a job to me. Like there are other jobs. I could probably go get another job. I probably would sell something. But this message of the gospel, this story of redemption of the Bible, like I'm buying what I'm selling. And I see, and sometimes it's painful because that correction and teaching, that rebuking, the training and righteousness, it hurts. We have athletes all in the room. We've got CrossFit men and women in the room. Training brings pain, but it forms.